I want to begin today by putting up our vision statement. We worked on that all of last fall. And look how it reads here together. Living with purpose by building a community that loves everyone deeply, developing personal relationships that lead others closer to Jesus, and equipping each generation to follow Jesus and become disciple makers. Now, I need to connect this to the new series that we began last week called 13 Questions, but we desire as a church to be purposeful in building a community that loves, and central to that is the great commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love other people deeply. But those second two bullets is an effort to fulfill the great commission to make disciples, But I want to connect this with a subtle issue that I see and have learned and looked at for years and years and years within the church. And there's beliefs within the church that I think must be modified. And it goes like this. All what a church needs is good programming to make disciples. Good programming the right Bible studies, okay sermons, and we need good children's ministries and youth programs to make disciples. Now, realize that core belief can have unintended consequences. See, here's the unintended consequences. Too many Christ followers believe this. I don't have to walk with any, uh, anyone else with Jesus. Bible study will do the job. The the pastor will do the job. That ministry will do it. And I'm convinced, though, that this default belief is one of the reasons why the church has been losing ground in the United States. More churches are closing their doors every day than are opening. Heard of that again this week on on a podcast that I listened to. I've thrown this out numerous times. When students walk away from the body of Christ, the last Barna research says that 90% of them have what's called either really they abandon their faith or have a mushy faith in terms of walking toward Jesus. What's our response? We want to become a church that's helping us become individually disciple makers disciple makers and the starting point for us is a book called disciple makers handbook we've been offering we started last fall we were offering more classes here this this winter and this spring step number one it's really to equip people to walk alongside of other people toward jesus now one of the things that we're doing in this class is we're keeping these classes small And we get a much deeper class, much better relational class. And for guys, I just got to let you know, there's a couple openings on one of the classes on Wednesday night. Larry, why don't you raise your hand? Larry is one of the leaders of that. If you're interested, I would encourage you to really prayerfully consider it. It's not too late to jump in there with it. But here's how that intersects with our new series. If we want to walk with somebody toward Jesus, we need a toolkit. We need to be equipped 
to pull out and go, how do we walk alongside of people? And one of the things that we can do is really is learn these questions that we're going to have this series on, these 13 questions. See, these apply as you walk with people, but also recognize another component of it. This applies to all of us deeply, these questions. Matter of fact, I, I feel like God is asking me to go farther in how I answer them. But last week, we tackled question number one, and it's a foundational question, and it's this. What is your definition of God? This question, the way you answer it, intersects with all of life and those other 12 questions. And last week, I gave two working views of God, how many people define God. But today, I, I got to go a little farther, take a few minutes to do that. And I would encourage you maybe to go back and listen online here because I, I dig into it a lot more. But view number one, here's how some people view it. God is a lawgiver. He's a type of judge, a type of, of, of cop to relate to him as to how we obey his rules. See, at the bottom, God is first a lawgiver. And the questions, how many of you or us want to look at the policeman who's on the side of the road and we run up to him and give him a hug? Okay, I got a confession. I got stopped this week. Not for speeding, okay? They pull me over as nighttime and he gets out and he tells me that I have a headlight out. Now, I, was, I have to be honest, so I bugged a little bit and go, why don't you just tell me to go get it fixed? So he writes up a, a, you know, a little ticket for me there. It was no money or anything to it. But you know what? I didn't feel like hugging him at that moment. Okay, I'll be honest with you. But there's a second option here. This is the right one, and this is where you need to go back and maybe listen. To define God, first, we need to look at Jesus. And how does Jesus reveal who God the Father is. And view number two is that God is a loving Father. When you look at Jesus, this is how Jesus defines him. Go back and listen. But I want to give you two more today, very quickly. Then we're going to move to a second question. But view number three is this. God is distant. He's sovereign way up there. He's powerful. He's a powerful force. And I'll have to admit, this was my view for many, many years. And I, I, I said this last week. There's a strong correlation many times here with this view of God and your father. See, our, our fathers, we, we have to admit that it impacts our definition of God when we hear that word father. But for me, my dad was nice. He wasn't a controller. He didn't give us a lot of expectations. He just wasn't relational. You know, when we went to the, his funeral, I, I did the service. I was leading the service. And people would get up, and, and they were telling about my dad, going, boy, your dad it was such a nice. He was a, he was a Mr. Rogers kind of guy. But all six of us kids were looking at it and go, anybody really know dad? And the answer was no. I don't even remember sitting in his lap ever. But realize what it does, it promotes a distant God who's not relational. Now, the evangelical world doesn't teach this. 
It's just kind of absorbed. And this view is far more popular than you understand. Matter of fact, if you go back to the early church founders or even into the Constitution, early United States people, Benjamin Franklin held this view, Thomas Jefferson. I came across a quote from Franklin that said this, God was supremely perfect, but God doesn't care one bit, quote, for such an inconsiderable nothing as man. That's how he viewed him. But if God is distant to you today, here's what I would encourage you to do. Put a set of relational glasses and, and, and look at it through the lens that God is a good father, then jump into the scriptures. James 4 has a great understanding. because It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. See, that's where we need to go in this view. But there's a fourth view here. The view number four is this. That it's God in a genie bottle or in a lamp. Now, let me put another picture. Anybody know what lamp this is? From Aladdin. And it kind of goes like this. If you rub God's magical lamp, he's going to give you the answer that you want and deserve. I don't know if you realize this, about 17% of Christians in the United States hold on to this view. And this view has a very distinct theology. And years ago, people, um, actually early in the 20th century, late early 1900s, they cherry-picked some theology out of the Abrahamic covenant to claim extra spiritual blessings and essentially, it teaches that atonement gives you extra blessings that we deserve if we just claim them. Health and wealth and a happy life are divine rights of people. And this belief implies that the work of Christ on the cross goes beyond just the atonement of for sin and, and even reestablishing a relationship. It includes the right to remove sickness from our lives and poverty and heartache and even suffering. And to do it, you just claim the right kind of faith, the right belief. Faith is a spiritual force that leads to a health and wealth and a happy life. And prayer is kind of the tool that unleashes that. God comes out of the lamp and to grant us what we deserve. God has to come through for me. When we were in Kenya, this view is profoundly prevalent through all of Africa. But sin ultimately is this, I didn't believe right. Something, something's wrong. So I think the challenge is people get into this theology, this twisted theology, it goes like this. If, if it didn't work, maybe I didn't have enough faith. Or it can switch and go, I'm angry at you, God. You didn't come through for me. But here's where I need to jump to another question. But I need to start it with a pre, this pre-question. And it's this. Do you regularly stop and identify the obstacles in your walk toward Jesus? Do we slow down and look in a mirror and ask, do I have things in my life that are holding me back in my journey toward Christ? For some of us, 
two steps forward, three steps back. And that's the tendency of our lives. See, it needs to force us to go, what's wrong? So here's the second question. Number two, what is your awareness of spiritual baggage? That's why this suitcase is up here this morning. And how it intersects with your life in Christ. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. You know, over the years, I've been in ministry for about 25 plus years. I've done, I think it's between 50 and 60 weddings. And one of the things that I do in premarital counseling is this illustration of couples bringing baggage into the marriage. And one of my goals is, I can't unpack everything, but it's to raise awareness so they begin to try to work on it. And it's, so it's looking at junk and sin and how it's going to impact them down the line. But think of a couple coming home up from the honeymoon, had a great week or two, and then they put the physical suitcases in the closet, and then they bring out these emotional suitcases and personal suitcases, and they open them up, and then they begin to live life together. And it doesn't take long for the other person to be thinking stuff like this. I didn't know this about you. I, this is surprising to me. What do you mean you don't like Ludafisk? I can't believe it. We always do it for Christmas. Shouldn't have married you. That's a serious one. But there's other stuff, folks, that is far more prevalent. It more goes like this. I didn't know that you were so critical. You know, when you go half empty, half full glass, you got a quarter. See, when you're dating, when you're working on that relationship, you never showed me that. See, we, we, early on in the relationship, you only give the best you show your best. You leave the baggage in the closet. That's, it's kind of like we do when we come to church, to be honest with us. I, I think we have to admit that at times. See, when the guard comes down, the real person comes out after the honeymoon. But the question, are we aware, are we acutely aware of our own baggage that hinders our faith. And I'll tell you this, from working with people for years and years, many people are unaware of it. They never stop. They never open up the suitcases. They don't know the stuff that's held in them. And they don't realize that that stuff is holding them back from running toward Jesus. Look at the text today. Two verses. That's all we're going after. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, lay, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, this verse reminds us there are things that are holding us back, hindering 
that movement toward Christ. Let me give you some baggage realities this morning to unpack that, those couple verses. Letter A, the first one in your notes, if you're following along in the outline. Some followers of Christ envision Christianity as a summary of their conversion experience. What do I mean by that? It goes like this. People know they were lost, and now through the Holy Spirit, they found Jesus. They, they've, they've confessed their sins. They've turned to him. They're born again. But basically, they stop there. Or very little movement in their progress toward Christ. See, the, the conversion is basically the highlight of their walk with Jesus. And if, you, if that's people here today, I'll tell you this. You are missing a whole bunch of stuff. We got to go farther. But the fact that some Christians are oblivious to the fact that any progress is needed. You know, it, it kind of goes like this. Isn't enough that I believe in Jesus? Life is good. I'm not, it's not going that bad. Do I really need anything more? I, I go to worship regularly. I serve a little. I, I avoid those really scandalous sins. Is the Christian life really more than that? And I go, yes, yes. Now, here's, I, I got a, a theory. It, it, it's mine. And I think there's, um, if you're a person that has come to faith younger with your walk for Christ, I think this belief gets embedded in your teenage years. And if you're a teenager, that would be the challenge for you. And it's why 90% walk away and have a mushy faith. There's just no understanding of really movement and salvation is the high point of their life. But let me go after a phrase. Look at verse 1 again. I want to put that on the screen. Let us lay aside every weight. And some translations literally use baggage there. Junk. And the sin which clings so closely... Those two things cling. Let us run with endurance the race. Now that word cling, some inversions use the word entangle. Think of a ball of yarn around your legs, just all bound up around it. It holds people back. Weight holds people back. I, we understand the sin part of it. That makes sense to us. And we're going to look at that another time with another question. But clearly, in the original language, there's two concepts, that which is sin and that which is weighty, and you go, it's not always sin, that weight. So this text is really pointing to an obvious second truth point. For your notes, many people are unaware that there are non-sinful parts to their lives that keep us, as a typo there, from running the race toward Jesus. There's things in the category of the non-sinful world that hold us back as we try to run toward him. My high school basketball coach, um, one of the things he used to do a couple times, two or three times a year, he'd pull out these vests, uh, 20, maybe, I don't know, 20, 25 pounds, and he'd have the starters have to wear these, this weight. And man, it was 
two or three times up the court and trying to jump with them and the other. Man, it wasn't long before you're just going, the guys were, the subs are going past you. And it feel like you were just plotting. You were just, oh. That's what this scripture is talking about. And you begin to plod and to coast and realize many followers of Christ are unaware of this issue. That there are non-sinful things that hold us back spiritually. Let me give you some of these things. And, and understand, this is just a quick taste. We could spend days, <laughs> many hours, talking through some of these things. Here's, a, here's one of them. Your personality type. Your personality type. Do you know that can hold you back spiritually? Now, there's some people with this kind of attitude. I'm just a go-with-the-flow attitude. You know, I like to kick back and not worry about anything. It's kind of a laissez-faire type of feeling. You know, and there's good to that kind. Matter of fact, they don't struggle with stress. And they don't struggle with anxiety so much. They don't make a mountain into a molehill. But here's the dilemma, is this passage, these two verses, because it's a, the illustration, the metaphor is an athletic thing. Folks, you never play athlete. If you're, oh, whatever, coach, I'll, I'll jog today if you want. It doesn't matter. You see, this screams intentional. Discipline. And if we don't adjust, it holds us back spiritually. I, let me give you a personality, another one. Some of you are introverts. Do you know that being an introvert can be baggage for you? I don't want to be with people. I just need to be alone. That's where my, I get my energy. I get wore out. Now, you have to, I have to confess, I'm an introvert. Okay? And, and there's not an extreme one. I, I've known people say this, man, I'd love to do ministry if I could do it without people. But listen, the truth, movement toward Jesus always works better with people in our lives. But being an extrovert can be baggage as well. You're so busy running with people and get stirred by people, you don't slow down and realize that all of the stuff that you're, the people stuff is keeping you back from looking at Jesus, just in that personality type. Let me give you another one. Personal preferences can be baggage. All different kinds of preferences. And it can consume us and hold us back. You know, one of them I've seen watching over the years is preferences surrounding church. You know, the preference actually become kind of equal to biblical truth in people's lives. But it's, it's some people are, because of their even personality a bit, I got to have the perfect church. The perfect church. They don't realize when they get there, they've just destroyed it at that point. But the preferences around church of going, what is it? If I don't get that, I got to keep looking for another one that's going to be perfect. And they never settle down in a body of believers. And guess what? It will hold you back spiritually. Do we know that? 
I, I've watched people get bent out of shape while the versions of the Bible, it holds them back. See, each of us have hundreds of different preferences that differ with others. And the question, who gets the right to decide which prefer preference is really the right one? You know, watching even over the years, people actually looking, I got to have the right type of Bible study and the right teacher before I commit. And then they never commit. Baggage holds them back from jumping in. You know, I see people close them, themselves off to learning and applying the scriptures because the method isn't right. Ken, you don't pre preach expository like they define it, okay? Or I'm not going to listen to you. You know, in that case, oftentimes they'll do, you know, you know what, what? Define Jesus' expository preaching. And you know what you'll find is their definition doesn't line up with how Jesus taught you see, the preferences keep us back. But look at verse 2 again. I want to put that on the screen. Looking to Jesus, the founder, the starter, and the perfecter of our faith. The founder and the perfecter. It's not about just the right Bible study. It's not about just the right worship. It's not about my perception you know, of the right teaching. Our preferences can be held, hold us back. But you understand, Jesus is the one that we got to pursue. Here's another one, though, that keeps people in the stands and kind of on the sidelines. The baggage of coasting and settling for a good enough spiritual life. See, I, I don't believe it's just it's blatant sin, but the subtle quest to have a comfortable life. The result is more than likely spiritual coasting. Had a conversation with somebody after the first service, and we were talking about, you know, for us that are getting older, that finishing well and the temptation to coast. See, when people put their spiritual growth on cruise control, many times they do not even know it. It's baggage when you don't know it. And there's a subtle attitude that creeps in. I don't need to study anymore. I've learned plenty of verses in Awana when I was a quid. I did quizzing. I was a terrible quizzer, I'll admit that. I don't need to help keep learning. I don't need to keep reading and growing. Things are going pretty well. That attitude is baggage. But realize this, there's a tipping point where some of this stuff can lead to even sin. You know, when the love of comfort and money takes complete control over you, there's a tipping point. Ease and comfort and whatever is more important than Jesus. Here's another one. Our families. Now, now this belief actually goes back to when I was a youth pastor in the early 90s, mid-90s. And when I bring this up, I recognize that there's people that get irritated a little bit on the inside. Now, it doesn't mean that you throw your family away because they're baggage. Not at all. You're called to walk with them toward Christ, helping them become disciple makers. But they become a weight when you decide that family is bigger and more important than the kingdom of God. You know, the greatest sermon that was ever preached was... Jesus that preached it. You know, in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, 
he talks about fear and anxiety and about really that people's need to control their lives and not trusting. It's really a section on trusting God, okay? And then he comes to some incredibly powerful verses. I want to put them on the screen. Look at Matthew 6.32. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek, the fir seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do you know what will happen when a family becomes, when it becomes a weight and it holds us back? We twist the verse just a little bit. Seek first my family and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added on to you, but that's not the text. Jesus tells us to seek the kingdom first, and that's what he modeled with his earthly family. Sure, we got to figure it out. But realize as well, there's a line even on this area that we can cross where family literally becomes an idol. It's been, being, it's been written about for about 25 years, and it's still a relevant topic in the church today. But let me go after another one, because this passage actually points to even more. It's the baggage of fear, anxiety, guilt, shame. Now, you got to catch something. I don't put all these words in the category of sin. Not at all. You know, we have emotions being created in the image of God, but they're yeah, they're overcome by the flesh sometimes, I understand that. But these words can create a weight on us that hold us back spiritually. See, is all fear and anxiety sin? No. Jesus was actually troubled in his spirit at times. But our emotions exist in a fallen world, so there's pain and, and struggles and issues, and they are real now, I, I wish I could take the time to go, how do you deal with that stuff? Can't today. But do we try to cover them up by actually ignoring them? I, I think that's what happens many times. We bury them deep within our hearts and our souls. But when fear and guilt pulls us to control, it becomes weight that holds us back spiritually. And we try to ignore it's there. And we actually spend a lot of energy trying to believe that they have no impact on our lives running toward Jesus. But there's one more issue here that in many ways is woven through all of these issues that impacts us. It's, and it's really, I think, a weighty issue. It's this, the weight or the baggage of independence. An attitude of independence. I'm responsible for my own life. Folks, that is a profoundly weighty issue on us and it holds us back. Let me give you kind of a partial answer to it and just where we have to go, letter C. Freedom of baggage begins by understanding this weight. Folks, this is like a 10-pound gorilla on our backs. You know, I, I never knew my grandfather on my mom's side. He died in a farm accident, and, and uh, my mom was the oldest, and she was just married. It was just after that, so there was no grandkids involved. So I never knew my, my grandfather, but I understand he was an alcoholic. 
That's heavy weight. That's baggage. Now, I realize that there's other addictions, other baggage stuff like pornography, workaholism. Now, we don't really, we try to avoid that one. There's control addictions. There's drug addictions. All kinds of stuff out there. That's weighty stuff that holds us back. But there's an observation even with these things that I've had for years and years and years on these tough issues. It's this. People always tend to believe that they can deal with the stuff and the weight on their own. And it rarely works. People look at this verse, get rid of the weight and the sin that entangles, and they believe it's all up to them. It's that independent spirit. I got to pull myself up by the bootstraps, and I can get rid of it. But look at verse 2 again. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. We got to catch, there's a couple things going on here. Two things that we must understand. First, it's to keep our eyes on Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder, that word perfecter. He is actively, when we bond with him, he is the one that can deal best with the weight. But here's the deal. Too many people take a half-hearted effort to actually look at Jesus good enough. My faith is good enough. And, and you go, if that's where you're at, you're living a life, an illusion right now. But there's a second component to this. And there's a core issue that keeps people from getting rid of the weight that's connected to that. And it's the consequence of independence. And let me put the last statement for your notes on there. The consequence of independence is we avoid inviting people, inviting people into our lives that can speak toward the weight and the sin that holds us back. Now, we got to catch something here. When it says Jesus is the perfecter, one of his primary tools is to use other people in our lives. In our lives. Now, we, we look and we, baggage kind of goes like this. I've got my friends. Well, they meet your relational need. I, I can acknowledge that. But the question, do your friendships give you access to your soul? Do, are you given access to them to speak into your heart, into your motives of why you do what you do? You know, 40 years ago, a youth pastor challenged a whole bunch of us um, as we were working in a youth ministry. And one of the things that he just drilled in us, guys, you need three character qualities to make a difference. You have to be faithful. You got to be available. And this third component, you got to be teachable. And that last quality of being teachable means this. You are willing to open your life to people that can, that can speak to the heart. There's lots of people that are in our lives, they have no ability to do it. They can't look at you and see your baggage. 
that which is even non-sinful or the sinful. See, this is about letting people in and not people that just tell you what you want to hear. See, when we're stuck there, if we're not teachable, folks, that is baggage that's holding us back. I'm going to ask the elders to come on up. We're going to hand out the communion, the bread. We practice open communion. And I would encourage you just to wait and take it. So, guys, I'm going to ask you to just to begin to hand it out. And I'll finish here as you're doing that. Um, My wife... um, well, let me explain this. When we're driving in the car, okay, and, and it's interesting, I'll be driving, I'm usually doing most of the driving, and she'll look over at me and go, Ken, you got nose hairs. <laughs> okay, I look in a mirror, I can't even see them, you know, but as you get older, you recognize, okay, for myself, they grow faster in my nose than they do on top of my forehead, okay, uh, in that, so... But she can see them. I can't. So I you know, go in there, try to pull them out, and get teary-eyed trying to do that, okay? And finally, you got to go get the nose clipper to actually get rid of them. But here's the question. Is there somebody in your life that you're giving, that, the, that, that you are allowing them say, you got spiritual nose hairs, and it's impacting you with people? Or in this area. And it might, those things, it's not necessarily sinful. This is what we got to catch. It's not just sin, folks. Do we allow people into our world to really speak toward us? God has chosen to use people in our lives. So the truth of who God is can flow through another person and into us. Look at a passage. Do we allow this to fulfill even pursuing Christ? Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. A truly good friend will openly correct you. You can trust a friend who corrects you, but kisses from an enemy are nothing but lies. See, do we have people in our lives that have the capacity to see us, to speak toward it? It's why we need mentors in our lives. I got to make a commitment to, to invite people into my life that will speak toward me. See, iron sharpens iron. But sometimes you, you try to sharpen yourself by people who don't have the capacity to be iron. Or we find people that who aren't hard enough, really, or aware enough to reveal our bags. See, how does it intersect with our life in Christ? See, this passage, throw off the weight and the sin that so easily entangles, clings to us, and then we run toward Jesus. That's what we're called to do. But this table represents a work of Christ and it's a reminder to us that he wants us to experience not only freedom from sin, but he wants to use us for his kingdom in such a way and the things that will hold us back even in that area. So we want to do this. 
But we want to give thanks. It's because of Jesus and what he's done that we can gather together and that he is the perfecter in our lives. And we celebrate that today. Let's stand. Let's worship God. He's the audience. Um, but he wants to work in our lives. He's not done with us. That's good news. He doesn't give up on us. But he does want us to look to him and trust him and to walk toward him. But let's just sing and worship.